0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So, if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Kendall Vanderslice, baker, writer, and public theologian. I first became aware of Kendall when I read of a bread baking workshop in which she teaches participants to bake as a form of prayer. Workshops like these are one of the offerings from Edible Theology, an educational ministry founded by Kendall that connects the communion table to tables we eat at every day. As I've explored Kendall's work, including her new podcast, Kitchen Meditations, and her book about the dinner church movement, I've been challenged to think more deeply about the spiritual implications of eating and sharing good food, an activity that is near and dear to my heart. In our conversation, Kendall and I talk about life in academia, the gift of community, her thoughts on living life wholeheartedly as a single person, and yes, we get into a few recipes as well. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Kendall Vanderslice has committed her life to the study of food and community formation. She is a graduate of Duke Divinity School, Boston University, and Wheaton College. Kendall is a professionally trained baker, having learned from several top American pastry chefs. In 2018, she was named a James Beard Foundation National Scholar for her work bridging food and religion. Kendall is the author of We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God, born out of five years spent researching churches that worship together around the table. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. When I was reading your website and researching you a little bit, I found something intriguing. You say, when I embarked on a career as a pastry chef, I found that my love of bread transformed the ways I read scripture. So I'd love for you to tell us about that and how you came to study the intersection of food and theology.
1: Yeah. So I had always wanted to work as a professional baker growing up. I just always loved spending time in the kitchen and thought that that would be the career path that I would go down. And when it came time to actually graduate from high school and figure out what it was that I was doing next, I, I, I spent a gap year working as a baker. And then once I, I went to school, I debated whether or not to go to culinary school for a bit and ultimately decided to, well, through, through in various ways, God made it very clear that I was, <laughs> I was supposed to call, go to college. And so I went to Wheaton College for my undergrad um, and I sort of went kicking and screaming. I really just wanted to be a baker and wanted to go work at a bakery and didn't like the idea of going back to school. I felt like I was done with school, which is hilarious in retrospect. I have many, many more years in the academy since, but I I went to Wheaton and sort of the, the way that we approach that they approach education there is really thinking about how our faith intersects with sort of our academic work. And so that way of thinking of, of thinking about how my academic studies informed my faith and my faith informed my academic studies had already sort of taken root in me when I started working in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So after I graduated from undergrad, I did go ahead and start working as a professional baker and I would, I would work in this bakery on Sunday mornings. And then I would rush from the bakery to church and every Sunday I would go up and receive communion and I still had bread dough clinging to my arms. And it just started forcing me to think like, what does this bread that I made this morning and this dough that's still stuck to my arms have to do with this bread that I'm now receiving in the context of church. And at the time, I mean, I was working these like 12 hour shifts that started at three, four in the morning. And so I couldn't stay awake through a sermon (laughs) in Sunday evenings. And it was really hard to sort of keep that rhythm of church in my life. And the one thing that I could, you know, walking forward to receive the bread every Sunday was sort of the grounding point in that season. And so that is really what started to spark these thoughts of, Mm -hmm. of how does food, what does food have to do with, uh, what, you know, what, does what food and bread and baking have to do with communion and this meal that we share each Sunday.
0: Wow. And you've gone on to develop that more. Tell us more about the things that you're doing now to explore those ideas.
1: Yeah, so well, I I then spent a very long time studying sort of studying that in the academic context. So I did a degree in food studies at Boston University, which was studying food from sort of anthropology and history and looking more at sort of how food functions culturally. And while there, I started thinking in in terms of theology and so partnered with the School of Theology there for for some of my research. And then I went on to seminary and did a degree in theology at Duke Divinity and they are studied specifically theology of bread. And then that ultimately sort of turned into what I'm doing now, which is running a project called Edible Theology, which is an educational media project. Our goal is to help folks connect the communion table to the tables that we eat at throughout the week. And so we have sort of, we have public facing sort of our, we call it our communication side, where we're, our goal is to reach directly to people and help them think about how they engage with food. So we do that through our podcast, through our Instagram and, and through our email newsletters. And um, But then we also do a lot of work with churches, providing curriculum to help churches together think through these connections between the table between um, and bread and kitchen and, and the communion table.
0: I, I love your story and I love the way your, the passions that you identified even in your youth and in, in your youngest days have become knit together with everything that you're doing now. And I'm curious to know one you know we talk a lot with our work at the well and with women um, who are in academia about this journey of finding our calling and how sometimes it's not a straight line, that there are lots of twists and turns. How have you been able like in your experience, how have you been able to identify those next steps and the way that God is calling you forward?
1: Yeah, it's been a very circuitous journey. It has not been a clear, a clear path at all. In large part because there just isn't sort of a straightforward path for whatever it is that I'm doing. You know, it's I'm, I'm sort of carving my own path, and so there has, in some ways, that's been really freeing to not have any sort of barriers that define what it is that I should do. And in other ways, it's been very difficult because. We don't have a model really to follow and so it's been a lot of time in advisors offices <laughs> asking questions and sharing with them the things that i'm thinking and getting their hearing their reactions and engaging their thoughts and but then just a lot of like trying things and seeing what works i feel like for a long time i was sort of felt like i was in a dark room sort of pressing all over the place and just trying to see what doors opened and then and then after that try to see what opened next so it's been, at many points, very exhausting and stressful, but also just so much fun. I, I, it's just so delightful to get to do what I love all the time.
0: Well, and it sounds like your experience sounds so familiar to even my own and that that I, I hear, um, you know, other other people's experiences where, you know, from your current vantage point, looking back, you can see how a lot of things made sense. Absolutely. But that just in those moments, you have to, you know, do your best and trust and talk to advisors and press buttons. And
1: yeah, there's been a lot of moments where I've just felt like, I don't know what makes sense, but this just seems like what God's leading me to. And so I'm going to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I do think that time after time as sort of God has proven God's faithfulness in that it has made it not necessarily less stressful, but a little bit less terrifying to, to take those risks.
0: Yeah. Being in partnership on that that journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I really want to get to talk about your book too. So it's entitled, we will feast rethinking dinner, worship, and the community of God. And I had so much fun reading this. I thought it was fascinating. And I would love for you to talk with us a little bit more about your study of dinner churches. And I think let's begin with what is a dinner church and how did you learn about this movement?
1: Yeah, so a dinner church is a church that hosts its service over the course of a meal, around a table over the course of a meal. Uh, So I first heard about dinner churches while I was doing my graduate work in food studies at Boston University. I, I had been Wondering how does my work in in food and I was specifically researching sort of the social dynamics of eating together. I was thinking about like what happens when we sit at a table that changes the ways we relate to one another. And I had been wondering, what does this work have to do with communion with the, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist? You know, that that this is a table that we share. Christ is instituted as this central point of worship. What does that have to do with my academic research in? we eat together. And that's when I heard about St. Lydia's, which is a dinner church in Brooklyn, New York. It was sort of the first and, and most notable of, of these dinner churches that, that started. And so I heard about what they were doing and thought, this is it, this, this is where, this is how these kind of things connect and got very excited and started telling everyone that I met about my fascination with this church in Brooklyn. Um, And that's when someone told me, Hey, well, you know, there's a dinner church here in Massachusetts too. It meets just in the, the Western suburbs of Boston. And so I drove out with them one day and attended a service and was just, fascinated by what they were doing. And did I spent a semester doing ethnographic research of that specific church, mm-hmm. interviewing participants and, and asking what happens when you worship God around the table. How does this change the way that you engage in community? How does it change the way that you understand God's presence? And just trying to make sense of like, What happens when we worship in this way? And what can that then communicate back to us about God and God's choice to put a meal at the center of Christian worship?
0: Well, and you talk a lot about embodiment and how eating together underlines that aspect of our lives and the connectedness we have to Jesus and his embodied self and It's something that I think in particular, people who are in academic spaces or studying for the professions, you know, that there's, it's really easy to just think, you know, I've got to use my brain. I've got to power through food is fuel. You know, this is, I just got to keep going. But I, you, you would speak beautifully about, about ways that these dinner churches can ground us in a different way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just fascinating to think about, especially doing that work in sort of an academic context and feeling some of those tensions very viscerally that I cannot make sense of these things that I want to study and think about in my mind without paying attention to how I feel them in my body and how the people around me feel them in their bodies. But then realizing that our bodies communicate something important and there are ways of knowing that, are outside of our brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And as a baker, I knew that very well. There are rhythms and, and ways that like, I can't know in my head, you know, how dough is correctly. I only know it when I feel it and when I smell it and when I taste it. And that translates into academic context too, and into our, into our faith context as well, that there are these ways of knowing that are in our bodies, but it's, it can be really hard to, to value that and appreciate that. And you know the academy doesn't really favor that, <laughs> so yeah. it, it is it is um, really hard. But I think that it's something that's really necessary.
0: Yeah, I think it's really countercultural in academic contexts. And you know, one thing in particular I wanted to ask you about is you have a whole chapter where you talk about rest, and you mention a church called Root and Branch in Chicago, which is I'm in Chicago. Yeah, I've never been there. (laughs) But it sounds like an amazing example of community and that they provide a space for rest in worship, that that's something that is integrated into into their rhythms. And you call it the kind of rest that comes in setting aside the time to get the good of a community. So, I mean, I know I need more of this rest and I really believe our listeners do too. So, From your research, can you offer us some pathways into that kind of rest? And maybe in particular, if we have, if we attend churches that don't focus on it in this way.
1: Yeah. So the, that sort of line was drawn in part from uh, a line from one of Wendell Berry's short stories where he talks about a farmer who would have considered it a shame to have spent his day working in the field without getting the good of it. And I was really I was really moved by that sort of concept that our work could be something that also provides rest, but only if we see, only if we attempt to see sort of the good within it. And so I think that especially for folks who are who are in the academy and doing this sort of brain work all the time it can be really really hard to separate from our work sometimes impossible to separate from our work because yeah. it's something we're so passionate about and it's something that's so deeply interwoven into sort of our daily rhythms and so there is a bit of sort of a mental shift of saying like how do i how do i get the good of this work that i do mm-hmm. and sometimes maybe that looks like stepping away from it and finding something to do with your body that kind of regrounds you to your body, whether that is going for a walk or getting in the kitchen and baking something. Um, and sometimes that looks like just sort of reshifting your relationship to to the work that you're doing. So while I was in, in graduate school, I would sometimes, I, I would have loved to take Sundays off completely from work, but there was just no way that I could do that. And so I would save the reading that I found most exciting and most invigorating for Sundays. And I would say, this is the day, like, I'm going to have to work this day, but I'm going to make sure it's a day where I really get deep joy out of the work that I'm doing. And and, and try to think through what are ways that we can sort of shift our relationship to work and to rest so that we can understand our life as this rhythm of of work and rest.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing, it sounds like looking for invitations you know rather than focusing on the restrictions of all the have-tos in our lives but looking for invitations to experience rest even in the midst of some of those those rhythms of of mental work or physical work that there there are places where we can find rest I love that
1: yeah
0: you talk throughout your entire book really about community and the Unique kinds of connections that can be made in church settings. And as I was reading this book, I kept thinking about how we are in, still really in the middle of a pandemic. And so what, what ideas have come out of pandemic life around community for you? and in particular, you know, I've, I've been thinking about women who are in university settings, you know what opportunities can we watch for to connect with community that are unique?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have found first online community to be a really fascinating way of sort of of engaging Uh, and it sort of ebbs and flows and when that seems healthy and when that seems unhealthy, but I, some of my closest friends in life are people that I've met online, people that I have connected with on Twitter or on Instagram who then became really close friends because we were able to find folks that, that, resonated with the work that I was doing or the season of life that I was in um, or sort of the unique intersection of passions that I had um, and it became a really a really meaningful way to connect deeply with people who could just understand more than maybe the people in my day-to-day in-person life and I think that there are ways in which sort of online community can also become really dangerous um, it can really disconnect us from our day to day embodied lives but i think when we a- approach it with balance then it can be a really really meaningful way to to build community um, especially if we are in sort of more isolated fields and there aren't necessarily people at our church who understand at all <laughs> what our life looks like throughout the week
0: one of the things that we focus on a lot at the well is creating a space so that women who who do share you know, similar fields or life circumstances or things like that, you know, that there's a place to connect because as you say, you, it's not always somebody local who can yeah. understand all of those nuances of life.
1: Yeah. I also, even now when I was a master student at Duke, I I worked hard at connecting with doctoral students who were single women wanting to look at sort of what does, what does it look like? You know, what does this work look like? in a phase of life that's similar to my own and now I uh, work hard to sort of identify and connect with some other single women who are in the program that I was in knowing sort of the unique points of isolation Mm -hmm. that are the reality of sort of that program of being a woman in theology when that's typically it's just not as common as men in theology.
0: (laughs) Right. And I noticed this, you know, in your book, you mentioned your singleness and also in your podcast, and it seems like you've really given this a lot of serious thought. And I'm just fascinated to hear more about what it, what it means to you to live life wholeheartedly as a single person and what wisdom you can offer to, to people who are looking for that kind of experience and thoughtful living.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think everyone's experience of singleness is different and everyone's experience of singleness varies, I think, over the course of our single lives. And so there are points at which living wholeheartedly has been much simpler <laughs> than at other points. And I think first off, just realizing that those rhythms are a part of life has been really valuable to me mm-hmm. and realizing that I learn different things about myself, about others. And about community in sort of those different seasons and different different points. But I think one of the most valuable things that I have come to learn is that we are all created for community. We are all created with a need for community, for intimacy, and for companionship. And culturally, a lot of times we, even reading into scripture, especially these passages in Genesis, assume that that need is met in marriage or met primarily in marriage. And I think that is just sort of a flawed theological place to start, but also a a flawed ecclesiological sort of place to start that like, that's, that's a poor way of understanding church community and a poor way of just understanding how we relate to people. (laughs) And so finding ways to have deep and close and good community and companionship has has been, it is hard, but it is also, I think sort of the key towards, towards living, living well as a single person, but then also for my married friends um, and for our families of really having these various social and just support needs met. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that for a long time, I, I felt that like these needs for, I, I identified these needs for companionship and these needs for intimacy and felt that need very pointedly, and the assumption was like, oh, well, then marriage is sort of the way that this will be met, right. and realizing that, no, those, those things can be met in really close friendships. Those things can be met in, you know, joining my, my mom friends at the park and taking care of their kids for them for a couple hours in the morning, and that, that those needs can be met in intentional ways. And in the process, I am also meeting the unique needs of my friends who are married and my friends who are, who are parents. And, Mm -hmm. and that that is more, that that is how God desires for us to function in community. And that is how God desires to meet these needs for companionship.
0: Hmm. As you've been studying dinner churches, have you noticed places that do this particularly well, that are able to either through structure or personality or just community culture are able to, to create avenues for friendships like that?
1: Yeah. I think that the dinner church sort of model, it, it naturally encourages that. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the very church service takes place around the table. You are, you are reading scripture together, listening to a sermon together, but then immediately discussing it over a meal and that changes the ways that you relate to people, that that the people you go to church with are not just the people you sit next to in a pew, but they're the people that you sit across from at a table and talk. And the liturgical structure and sort of the formality of it being a church service provides the structure that's needed to help enter into some of those more difficult conversations and more intimate conversations. Mm -hmm. There's a difference when you have a discussion at a table with folks sort of in this sort of church table context that is very different than just sitting down with someone in a cafeteria or sort of in, a, in any other context that by having some structure around it, it, it allows for an easier sort of in um, that then sparks some of those more vulnerable conversations that allow that, those, those deeper communal needs to be met.
0: Yeah. It's like a container, you know, kind of set up for those conversations and then you can walk into it. So just for my curiosity, how is all of this working in pandemic life with dinner churches? I mean, are people cooking at home and then turning on their zoom or. Yeah. I mean, it's been very different. So I, I,
1: Did right after the pandemic hit, I went back to several of the churches that I had covered in my book and then to look at what are you doing now in this pandemic context. And they all found different creative ways to respond. Some were people were bringing their meals to Zoom and they would just eat together over Zoom. Some would do, someone would do a Facebook Live while everyone and everyone would watch it while they're at their dinner table. Some would, so I for a while during the pandemic, I was running a CSA style bread. Bread share, and so I would partner with churches, and I would I would bake bread for all the folks in their church, and then we would gather together over Zoom, and we would share a dinner church meal together. And so everyone was eating loaves, individual loaves of bread that a few hours before had been the same batch of bread. Um, and oh. so there was sort of this continuity even in the disconnection of being able to gather virtually, but also share this very tangible point of of connection.
0: What a fun idea! And a logistical complication. To, to
1: <laughs> definitely. It everybody. definitely. It was definitely, uh, complicated, but also really cool to see how yeah. the tangible grounding, even in sort of this disconnection.
0: Wow. I love that. Well, um, let's turn our conversation a little bit to the concept of being a woman in the kitchen. And at the well, we have an article that responds to a question written by a young female professor who was advised not to bake for her class, even if it was something she enjoys, because, and I'm going to quote the advice she received. You don't gain respect for your scholarship or your authority by baking. And this whole question just points to the weight of patriarchal expectations around cooking for women that's really tricky to navigate. So. Do you have thoughts on how to view this tension differently?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is this sort of domestic work has always been something that's devalued culturally and is still definitely devalued in the academy. And even studying these domest- this domestic work is devalued in the academy. Wow. So food studies, folks in, in the field of food studies have a really hard time gaining respect from colleagues mm. who see their work as sort of frivolous and, and not necessary, which is so sad because it is something that we all share. And, right. you know, food something that shapes so much of our lives, but studying, studying it is seen as frivolous or as sort of unnecessary. And so it is, it is fascinating the ways that sort of the things that get deemed that being a woman in the kitchen is considered something negative or, you know, this, this domestic work is, is devalued. But then men in the kitchen and when it becomes professionalized, it becomes the man's sphere. Right. Um, and so when I hear women in the kitchen, I think back to my time in the professional kitchen where it's very rare to be a woman in a professional kitchen mm-hmm. and you're constantly working against just the, the jeers of your coworkers um, and sort of the, the assumption that if you're going to be in the kitchen in the professional kitchen, then you need to act like a man and you need to be like a man. Mm. And it, you know, it, it means like it's, well, we can all think of all the different connotations of of what it means, but being, being tough, being like, being able to drink as much as the guys, being able to swear, like the guys being able to, you know, degrade women, like the guys that, that becomes sort of wrapped up. In this process of being in the kitchen, because that's how you undomesticate food. That you make the right. work of, of cooking professional. Um, and so there's just this constant tension that we're that we're wrestling against as women, whether we're wanting to cook in domestic spheres or cook in professional spheres. And it is really hard to wrestle that back and then claim it for what we want it to be. That the kitchen mm-hmm. can also be a place of empowerment where we can, where women can take back power from these patriarchal structures, you know, when women actually have a lot of power in the kitchen. And, but we also have to navigate that well, especially, um, especially if we are in an academic context and trying to think through how do you, how do you not let sort of these patriarchal structures define you by not allowing you to do what you want to do. And yet also how do we establish the respect that our work and that our scholarship deserves as women. There are some women in in the field of food studies, some in media studies, some who are in American studies, who are looking sort of at the ways that women engage food and women engage food media, Mm -hmm. and the ways that they use the kitchen to sort of redefine what it means to be a woman engaging in this domestic work. And there's a lot of, I think, fascinating potential for how how women can use that. And so I, I think that there's like food can be a really powerful tool for teaching, just from a pedagogical perspective of like, whether you are thinking about cooking together or thinking about sort of the science of cooking or the, like, it, it can be a powerful avenue into complex conversations, whether you're thinking about sort of the racial dynamics and get involved in, in what we cook, thinking about sort of how a recipe is structured or the legal ramifications of sort of copyright laws around around recipes. Like there are so many conversations yeah to be had around food and around cooking that could make sort of this this return back into the kitchen a really powerful teaching tool but but it is constantly sort of wrestling against this assumption that because it is domestic it is therefore not valuable uh, in an academic setting
0: yeah i mean i hear you saying that there is so much potential for good to come from it you know not just mm-hmm. here are some cookies because you've been such a good class, but, you know, but to use it as a teaching tool, but that one of the things that we need to do as women is to know ourselves and know our context and get really clear about why we're, why we want to bake for people or why we want to cook something. And if we're doing it from a place of freedom and joy and excitement in the ideas, or if it's something that feels like we should or ought, or, or even on the other end, if we're feeling stifled, you know, like we would be judged. I mean, that's something to examine too. So yeah, like so many things, it seems really individual, but such an interesting thing to talk yeah. about.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it really, it really does depend on the, the reasoning behind your desire to cook for, for others, but then also sort of the messaging around it, um, yeah. the language around it, of, of the, the story that you're narrating of what you're doing when you're cooking for someone else.
0: Yeah. So let me turn us now to some practical um, questions that I had. So this is kind of a, a baseline one because we've been talking about cooking. We, you love to cook. I actually really like to cook too but I know that there are some people who truly dislike cooking and it's just something to put food on the table. Do you have any encouragement for people who feel that way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that we all need to love cooking. I don't love gardening. I don't love uh, farming. And uh, in this work, that's sometimes seen as like people are like, oh my gosh, you don't, you don't like getting your hands in the dirt as much as you like getting your hands in dough. And I just don't. And it's necessary. I'm glad that there are people who do, who, who love that, or who at least who do farm and garden and, and, and spend their lives that way. And I'm not someone who loves it. (laughs) Um, And in the same way, there are a lot of people who don't love cooking. It's something that just has to happen. It can be stressful. It can be, it is time-consuming. And and it's expensive. And there's, there's so many points of stress sort of related to the kitchen and the need to eat. And so those are all very real. I I always am interested in encouraging people to examine sort of what is behind that feeling. Like, why do you dislike cooking? Is it that just the cost associated with it is really stressful and you don't want to think about it? Is it that you're busy and this feels like one too many things? Is it that you have a really complicated relationship to food in general? That, that you know, you you dislike your body. You're afraid of how the food is going to impact your body. Is it that you have allergies and it's just a minefield? You know, cooking is, is can be a dangerous thing. These are all different reasons that could drive sort of that dislike of the kitchen. And the sort of remedy to that is different. For some people, it might be that you're just not in a season where you can spend much time in the kitchen. And in that case, that's fine. Like, finding other, either other people that cook or buying, you know, pre-made things. If you're able to work that into your life, then that's perfectly fine. But I do think that one sort of way to start tiptoeing back into finding joy in the act of cooking and finding joy in the act of eating is to see those as opportunities to be present with God, that God is with us in the kitchen, that God is with us at the table, and that we could take just a short moment of time and really reconnect with our bodies. Think about what does it feel like when you are, you know, tearing that mint up for your watermelon salad? What does it smell like when you are chopping up the watermelon and trying to take a moment to reconnect with your senses and the ways that all of your senses are involved in this process and see if that helps to spark a little bit of joy as you, as you do what is just necessary to live as a human being.
0: Well, and I think it's, it's helpful to hear your encouragement to that. It's okay to take shortcuts, you know, when, right. I think some people feel judgment about, you know, how you're supposed to cook, but I've actually, embraced in this season of my life, I have embraced salad kits. It Mm -hmm. turns out that my kids will eat them and Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about it. And it's just really helpful. So, you know, maybe there will come a time when I develop my own salad kit sort of thing, (laughs) but just right now that's okay to not do that. We all have limitations
1: of some kind when it comes to cooking and eating and we have to have grace for ourselves to work within those limitations. Yeah. I am also a big fan of salad kits because I live alone and there's a lot right. of waste. I want to have different types of salad. And you know, I don't, if I
0: buy, if I buy everything from scratch, then I have to eat the same sort of salad every single day. And I don't want to yes. do that. <laughs> yes. That is great. So, okay. So I've really been enjoying your podcast and the kitchen tips that you have at the very end. So, and I have some, some questions for you to see if you can generate some tips for us. So what when you're exhausted, what do you cook? When you're exhausted, you come home and you're hungry. What do you cook?
1: Um, I'm a fan of snacks for dinner. <laughs> so I'll do like chips and salsa a lot for dinner. Again, I live alone so I'm not like cooking for kids or anything, which means I have a lot more flexibility, I think, in in what I prepare for myself. But I also am lately I've been really into like slow roasted sweet potatoes. So you literally just like take sweet potatoes, you stab them with a fork a few times and then cook them at around 275 to 300 degrees for about an hour. Mm. So that really long and slow cook is going to start to caramelize the insides and it makes them, it just makes them so flavorful. Um, And so I'll do four or five of those at once and then just keep them in my fridge. And so then if I am feeling, you know, really tired and don't want to cook, then I can just heat one of those up and mix it together with, any other sorts of leftovers. If I have like, I mixed it up with leftover brisket and it was amazing. Or, you know, I mixed it last night with
0: roasted Brussels sprouts and some like sausage and it's delicious. Beautiful. That sounds so great. I love that. So the next one is what do you cook for celebrations? Uh, Oh man. I mean, bread is sort of my cook, my all the time
1: thing. So if I am But for me, that's more because the actual process of making bread is exciting. It's how I handle any of my emotions, positive or negative. And so um, I'll make bread because I want to get my hands in dough. And that's sort of how I celebrate. That's beautiful.
0: Do you have a favorite cookie recipe? I do. So
1: I, my tahini chocolate chip cookies are my go-to chocolate chip cookies. They're made with brown butter and tahini and sprouted wheat. They're delicious.
0: (laughs) Okay. I love that. We'll link to that in the show notes. Perfect. And do you have a favorite vegetable or salad recipe? You talked about sweet potatoes already, but Mm -hmm. something else.
1: I mean, I'm a big fan of roasted Brussels sprouts. I could eat roasted Brussels sprouts almost every day. The key is making sure they're spread out on the pan. So you've got room between them all. um, And that'll help them get nice and caramelized on the outside rather than just being mushy. If they're too close together, it steams them rather than roasting them.
0: Yes. And I also, I mean, I think I've gone through phases where I try to be sparing with olive oil and it seems like with Brussels sprouts, you really don't want to do that. And you really want to go ahead and salt them.
1: Absolutely. Fat and salt are flavor. Um, yeah, salt and fat bring out the natural flavors in, in foods. And so I'm a big advocate of butter, olive oil, salt.
0: (laughs) I love that. You are my friend already. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what do you eat for breakfast?
1: Um, Coffee always. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have a big, I start with coffee and can't do anything until I've had coffee. And I am, I am someone who is not very consistent in sort of my, my breakfast. So if I have a loaf of bread on hand, I'll eat toast. If I have yogurt in my fridge, then I'll eat yogurt. And you know, lately it's been yogurt and with peanut butter and bananas, but yeah, if I'm, if I'm recipe testing right now, I'm recipe testing muffins. So I'll probably be having muffins for breakfast for the next few days. Well,
0: this has been so much fun, Kendall, and we are going to put in, in our show notes, we'll list lots of different links to recipes and your podcast and edible theology and all those things. And I just want to thank you for being with us. Yeah. Thank
1: you so much for having me. That's been so delightful.
0: One of my favorite things about my conversation with Kendall was hearing the way she speaks of food as a serious and holy business, but also with a sense of joy and playfulness. I love the framework she is building to help us find the depth of spiritual meaning in our everyday meals, and I find myself inspired to make a loaf of bread sometime in the next few days. Would you care to join me? I've included a link to Kendall's Guide to Bread Baking in our show notes, which you can find in our article at The Well. And if you listen all the way to the end of the credits, you'll hear Kendall sharing an original benediction with us to close our show. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Ann Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even 5 or $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at give2iv.org thewell or through our donation link at thewell. To ensure that others will find and enjoy our podcast as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, receive this benediction from Kendall Vanderslice. God, you reveal
1: yourself to us in word and bread. We know you in our minds, we praise you with our mouths, we taste you on our tongues when words can't capture the fullness of your love. May we taste and know your goodness today. Amen.